Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Imogen Watson, Working Inspiration Editor at Campaign. In today's episode, Gideon Spanier, UK Editor-in-Chief of Campaign, speaks to Richard Thompson, the Chair of MSC Saatchi in the UK and Chair of the England and Wales Cricket Board. Thompson made his name as the founder of talent agency MNC Saatchi Merlin, and he talks about the growing power of celebrity and influence of talent in the marketing world, as well as the corporate changes at MNC Saatchi with CEO Murray McLennan leaving in September. And as summer draws to a close, Thompson also discusses cricket and the challenges and opportunities. Later on, I'll be joined by Elderman UK's Emma De La Fosse and Uncommon CX's Ben Golick to discuss some recent ads. But first, over to you, Gideon. So I'm Gideon Spanier, UK Editor-in-Chief of Campaign, and I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Thompson, the Chair of MNC Saatchi in the UK, and also the Chair of the England and Wales Cricket Board, the ECB. So Richard, welcome. How's the summer been? Uh, thank you, Gideon. Yeah, very busy. Uh, we've managed to cram almost a season of cricket into June and July, um, and obviously a very busy day job with MNC Saatchi at the same time. So um, having to juggle two quite big roles, but hopefully succeeding in both. Um, and yeah, it, it's great that from a cricket perspective that cricket dominated the headlines for all the right reasons this summer. Well, I was lucky enough to go to the cricket one day at Lords, and I know that this was for the Ashes against Australia. And I know that in your box, you managed to get the Prime Minister and the um, Prince of Wales and his sons, Prince George. So uh, I believe it was the first time Prince William had ever come to Lords for an Ashes match. And Prince George, yeah, I think it's the first time we've had two heirs to the throne um, at a test match at Lords. So it was, um, and it was a private visit too. This was an opportunity for for Prince William to bring his son, who plays cricket, that to to come and enjoy a day at the Ashes, which I think they thoroughly did. And it just it was complete coincidence that um, the Prime Minister was there too. That wasn't planned. Um, so it was a it was a great day and a really enthralling afternoon of cricket which I think everybody enjoyed well the reason is is that you, people may know that you came up through the advertising world and the marketing world by founding the talent agency Merlin so you definitely understand about networking and talent uh, you sold that to, <laughs> well you know just saying you sold that to MNC Saatchi in 2013 so 10 years ago so an interesting uh, decade you've had and then during lockdown, during March, March 2021, you took on the chair role at MNC Saatchi UK. So maybe we'll come to the cricket at the end. But I mean, MNC Saatchi has had quite the drama. Um, we know there was some accounting irregularities at the end of 2019. And then they, they, they sort of got sorted and a line was drawn in 2021. There was a new CEO, Murray McLennan, who'd stepped up globally now, actually, Murray has announced he's stepping down. He's leaving in September after 40 years of service to the Saatchi brand. So what's it been like at MNC Saatchi UK for the last couple of years as chair? Well, how, 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 do you, how, do you, how would you describe it? Well, I think getting through the pandemic was the first significant issue. But MNC Saatchi is just an extraordinary brand and an incredible business. Uh, it's a brand that I've recognized over the last 10 years that can get you into any room. Um, Clients, people have high expectations of MSC Saatchi given its legacy and given the current work it does is world-class. The people it's attracted, the Murray McClellans that have helped found the business, um, have attracted other extraordinary people. And I guess there's a 
there's there's a mystique in our brand, but there's also a sense that it gives you permission to do things that other brands don't necessarily enable you to do, underpinned by an incredible resilience, given the last few years, which have been the accounting regularities that we had to get through, then the hostile takeover, then the pandemic, um, you know, one thing after another, which would, for some businesses, seen them off. But MSC Saatchi continued to grow. Last year was a record year. Uh, so I, I do feel that it is an extraordinary business. The 10-year journey I've been on um, has been extraordinary for, for the talent business that I helped found, that I sold to the group, that's now doubled in size by having that brand above the door, um, attracting talent and opportunities that wouldn't necessarily have come our way. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I've, I, I find that, as I say, the Saatchi brand has a spirit of entrepreneurialism that other agency groups don't have, a sense of independence that other groups don't have, um, and that ability to do things that you can't do elsewhere. So I enjoy the environment thoroughly. I enjoy chairing the UK group now, which is 14 agencies um, that, you know, last year or pretty much every one of them recorded a record year. And certainly the area that I'm very focused on in passions has probably um, grown, you know, uh, uh, recorded some of the fastest growth across, across the group. So, um, you know, it's it, there's something about this brand that will, will always attract headlines, but I'd like them to be, you know, more positive headlines than maybe some of the ones that we've had. But despite that, this is a group that's still that's still growing and developing um, and still very relevant. So on passions, now it's, it's an interesting area. We've talked about talent. I guess there's uh, what I think of as the influencer world, and then there's sort of sports, uh, sports marketing, and so on. And I've seen from your numbers that it, that uh, the business, I think. Overall, passions is gone from eight percent to twelve percent uh, over the last three years. So, tell us a little bit about that world of talent and influencer. It's interesting to know how much leverage talent has, and then obviously the people who have built their brands, as it were, in the influencer world. Uh, you're also getting people like Ryan Reynolds or Raheem Sterling actually setting up their own ad agencies. Give us a sense of you, you. You know, you see across from both sides the big clients and then the talent. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, passions for us is actually talent management on one side and sports and entertainment on the other. That's passion. And that's kind of headed up by Steve Martin. Uh, the talent business, which is kind of my part of the passions that, that I still chair, um, is influencer and what you would call traditional talent, TV broadcast talent. And so we see every aspect of talent management. And because you're in a group like MSC Saatchi, and my background has always been in marketing services, we have looked at talent for 21 years as they are, as if they are brands. So we've instilled a sense of discipline, structure, strategy into the lives of an individual um, that allows them to cross over and monetize their name, their brand into a brand that other agencies and other talent may have struggled to do so. That big A-list talent that Ryan Reynolds is with what he's done at Wrexham or you know how other extraordinary global talent like a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Messi or, or you know some of the big basketball players have recognized that through the advent of social media they now own a community they they have a platform a voice they can influence a brand in a way that they wouldn't been able to do without social media Brand endorsement's been around from the days of George Foreman and Paul Newman salad dressing. It's nothing new, but now it allows the brand 
that the individual to take more ownership, to have more control, to have more influence. And obviously, influences as such are a separate revenue stream as such to some talent. You know, their day job may be in acting or um, or, or doing whatever else they're doing. They could still be active, active sports people. But they've now got that ability to attract investment uh, in, in a way that wasn't a, wouldn't been able to have done 10 years ago. Uh, and and the, the Ryan Reynolds opportunity is a really interesting one if you think that started as a Netflix documentary, Welcome to Wrexham, and then the fairy tale ending that that had. I think we're going to see more talent seeing assets uh, that they can buy and acquire. They bring their profile um, to bear. They bring their audience to bear on this. And suddenly they take a brand like Wrexham into a brand now that's in tens of millions of people's homes in the US that would be unthinkable without somebody like Ryan Reynolds that's taking them on that journey into that space. So I think we're, we're seeing the next iteration of talent management in the sense that talent have now uh, kind of transcended the worlds they're in to every extent and are now owning assets, owning football clubs, could be owning cricket clubs. Um, you know, there's, I think it's, it's hard to distinguish now what they can't do rather than what they can do. In terms of, you know, people talk all about TikTok, there's clearly the social platforms are constantly evolving. But is there real leverage that they've got with the social platforms or is it actually about getting in a weird way off digital and into the real world? You you know, here you are, you mentioning sports, it could be live entertainment. I'm just trying to work out. I'm always slightly wary of riding the algorithm. Well, look, you, you, every channel, you've got to look at social media as, you know, TikTok, Snap, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube are just channels to market. They're all different channels. And the talent sit above those four or five channels. They're all reaching different audiences and they're leveraging those channels. Um, and in many cases, TikTok is going to generate a far younger audience to an audience that Facebook will generate for you. And so as much as you can ride the algorithm, you're looking to try and develop a strategy that allows you to play across platforms to develop a very broad audience, as opposed to in the past that most talent would have one audience, one demographic, and they would play that demographic and they would sit within that one lane. And if you take someone like Ryan Reynolds, who's now used his social media platform, he now sit. you know, it's the Netflix documentary that's elevated Wrexham. So he's now playing in the SVOD territory, as well as the existing uh, social media channels that exist there. And he's bringing them all content. He's created that content. Uh, and that content will now play through each of those uh, platforms, either in long form or short form. Brands will attach to it. So, you know, it becomes a virtuous circle um, in the sense that there's a broadcast platform that sits above it, but also beneath it, there are digital channels there reaching very different audiences in different volumes, depending on what, 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 what content he is serving them. Um, and that, that's how you've got to operate as a talent now. You sit above all of it and you've got to work out what lane I want to play in. Do I need to be in the TikTok lane, the Snap lane, the Facebook lane, the YouTube lane? You know, you're seeing a huge shift from long form to short form. Um, and, and, and it, you know, these things are becoming more sophisticated with the way you can boost a channel, the way you can drive uh, drive a followership in a certain direction. So it is very sophisticated, but it allows any talent 
to play any channel now. They're, you know, TikTok three years ago, you would say, oh, that's just for kids. Well, no, you, you look at TikTok now, you've got some very significant older legacy talent putting some incredible products in there. If you think of back catalogs, um, Stranger Things has resurrected Kate Bush's back catalog, the way that so many artists, music artists, have seen their catalog suddenly become more relevant through the use of those channels. So it's, it's a very dynamic time in that world. So if we look at MNC Sarchi UK overall, um, I mean, advertising is still the biggest part by far. And I appreciate I was asking about talent, but it feels like not just for the, um, you know, just for the industry as a whole, that the traditional advertising or, or just advertising is under pressure and being squeezed, but there's this growth in these other disciplines. And what's the future of the ad agency within this? Well, I think that the power of MNC Sarchi is that it's got such a broad range of agencies that don't that ensure that it isn't overly dependent in any one sector. And and the ad agency, particularly as a, a government rostered agency, is always going to have great value doing really important work, landing great creative, really strong messaging. But aside from that, you know, you've got a great comms business, sports entertainment business, world services, fluency on data or thread or Merlin with talent. Um, there's there's no area that as a group we don't play in. And despite there might be a kind of a commoditization of, of the advertising world and, and more in-house work potentially, it doesn't really affect us in the way it will affect other groups. We are less, um, uh, less vulnerable to those shifts in the way that uh, CMOs are thinking and the way that brands are promoting. Clearly, you know, we are still dependent on you know the, the headwinds of an economy and the way that confidence may play out and restrict uh, new brands wanting to do things. But broadly speaking, one of the reasons MC Saatchi has got through the last few years as well as it has done is because it has got this tremendous breadth of different disciplines and different agencies that ensure it's not over-dependent on what you would regard or anyone else would regard as traditional advertising. All right. You've also got a new boss, Zilla Bing Maddock, who's the exec chair who's uh, come in. Uh, any clues about what Zilla might do? Well, I think, you know, Zilla, you know, I think Zilla is incredibly impressive um, and, and can see real opportunity. You know, she was clearly attracted to the brand. She loves the business. She can see there's some very good people in this group. Um, and I think, you know, she will be a force for good. She can see that, um, you know, there's so much potential in what we do. She wants to see that growth um, materialize in the coming years. I've got absolutely every confidence under her leadership we will do that. Um, the part that I will play in the UK is to ensure that the UK remains as strong as it ever has done and accelerates its growth and doubles down in those areas that, you know, we, we can expand faster and quicker in. But, I, you know, I feel, you know, Zilla's approach um, by somebody that comes from outside of the industry, sometimes those, someone like Zilla has already demonstrated she can see the wood from the trees a lot faster and bring about change quicker. Well, she's certainly, given that Campaign is part of a media company, magazine business, she certainly did that at Future. So... Um, one thing you mentioned already about young people and attracting young people, and I know in the cricket world you you need to make cricket more inclusive. 
MSC Saatchi has a partnership with the Saatchi Gallery. And that's interesting because, of course, it was founded by Charles Saatchi, one of the founders of MNC Saatchi, even though he stepped back long ago from um, the ad agency world. So tell us about this partnership with the Saatchi Gallery, which is by Sloan Square, and why it matters. And I believe that this was one of the first things that happened after you became UK chair. Yeah, I felt what we needed to do, we needed to bring a Saatchi back in the building because there's no Morrison, there's no Charles. Clearly, there's still the culture that existed um, uh, underneath their genius. Charles is also no longer involved in the gallery too. So it, it gave us an opportunity to kind of bring that modernity back into our brand and bring that cutting-edge creativity. So we are the principal patron to the gallery. We have a very strong strategic relationship with what they do. Um, It gives us access to things no one else has, but also a collaboration and partnership over something called Art for Change. And Art for Change is to try and identify with the next tier of creatives globally with a global art prize, one of the very biggest in the world now. I mean, 142 different countries entered at last year's Art for Change prize. And that's trying to reach younger um, creatives, underrepresented creative audiences, to to give and shine a light on their work. Just the opportunity to have their work hanging in the Saatchi Gallery can be game-changing to their reputations and their careers. So Art for Change has enabled that to happen. Um, We want to accelerate that program. We've had nearly 2,500 separate entries already this year for Art for Change, which is extraordinary. Um, And we're seeing some amazing work, and we want to help you know, rather than bemoan the lack of creativity in the industry, we want to do something about it. And we feel a brand like Embassy Saatchi, there's an obligation on our groups to do something about this and to give young creatives that opportunity to enter a creative world that they may have found hard to do. And that unique relationship between Embassy Saatchi and Saatchi Gallery is clearly helping that to, to play out. And we're very proud of that relationship. Certainly, if this year's prize is anything to go by, um, it will eclipse last year. And that, that's hard to believe, given how successful it was last year. And who won last year? Um, we had a brilliant Nigerian artist that won last year, and he came up with this extraordinary piece of work uh, based on how COVID affected Nigeria, how everyone came together in this tapestry. Um, it was ironic that it was a very hard piece of work to transport, but it was... Um, well, a, a stunning piece of work because we're not just into we're it, it could be a sculpture it could be a physical piece of work it could be a painting a picture whatever so you know it, it's important that we allow every form of art to to enter into this um and and what nigeria went through in africa was very different to what europe or north america went through and that's what made that work so interesting well, that brings us on to the cricket again, because of, uh, I was thinking about the global theme. So we know that in coming up in the autumn, we've got the uh, there's one day internationals, there's the World Cup in India. So I'm just wondering from our, for our audience who are from brands and thinking about marketing, how, what is the opportunity with cricket? And uh, you know, I'm very aware that cr- cricket, as we might see it in the UK and England, might look quite different in these other markets, particularly somewhere like India, but other parts, places around the world. Well, it's a good question, Gideon. Ultimately, you know, I'm a brand guy. I'm a commercial brand guy. So I look at cricket um, through somebody that's been defined by cricket. My life has been defined by cricket. So I'm very passionate about the sport, but I see... I can be objective over the fact that it, it is um, 
occupying uh, a very unique place in our society and the, what it can do beyond winning games of cricket on the field. But it is currently the fastest growing global team sport in the world. Two billion people in South Asia play cricket and pretty much no other sport. Obviously, other sports are played out in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, but nothing like the way that when you travel through Pakistan or India and it's one sport, one passion, one country. Uh, so the opportunities around cricket at the moment, for instance, in 2028, there's a very strong possibility it will become an Olympic sport in LA. The new American League has now launched. That's got four years to establish itself before the Olympics. Then if it's successful in the Olympics with the top five men and women's T20 sides playing out, that will be an opportunity for effectively what is fundamentally an international sport to then become a global sport. And I think the growth of women's sports that witnessed with football and how we saw it play out with the Ashes to Ashes campaign this year, and we're filling test match grounds with brilliant women's cricket, um, has absolutely been transformational um, to the game of cricket um, and to, to women's sport in general. So I think that our integration of men and women's cricket, when Ben Stokes at the press conference talks about the men's Ashes, that's the first captain to, to talk about it in that way, recognising that both men's and women's ashes are on an equal footing. Uh, and, you know, that every sport is there to inspire people and inspire a generation to want to play that sport. And I think our current players are doing that in a phenomenal way. And um, we're lucky to have people like Heather Knight and Ben Stokes that are doing that. But there's a global sport with Saudi Arabia, clearly what they've done with Live Golf, uh, and their aspirations um, to do more in cricket is pretty clear. India will overtake China as the leading um, leading economy in the world from 2030. Uh, that's a population of 1.4 billion. Uh, the IPL, the Indian Premier League, is the most lucrative sports league in the world of any sport. One team has just sold for a billion pounds. The Lucknow Super Giants. They haven't, you know, after one season. So. You know, you're talking about a sport that's going through phenomenal growth. You know, it's an opportunity for English cricket to grow dramatically, we hope, in the coming years. Um, we've reinvented the format of test cricket in a way that nobody thought was possible. London hosted four test matches for the first time ever this year and sold every one of them out, including Ireland in the World Test Championships. So, you know, we are um, in a quite unique situation in cricket at the moment. And it's, it's for me as chair to ensure that we continue to grow it was my ambition for cricket uh, to be the country's most inclusive sport. I truly believe it can do that and should do that, given that cricket reaches communities that no other sport does um, and bring about real change in those communities as well in a way that no other sport can do. So it's important. And I have to ask you, because obviously it, it's uh, been this, there's been the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket, and this was a report which looked at uh, uh, really a lot of discrimination including sexism and racism in the the sport and uh, I know that you uh, as the ECB you know made an apology then said that we're going to use this moment to reset cricket so you've been in the role for a year and there's I believe four years left on your tenure so whilst you've painted an you know a, a picture where there's a real possibility of major major growth how tough is it to turn around sort of if you like some of the entrenched attitudes because that's really what the report has shown 
It, yeah, it's a report we commissioned as a game two years ago, and it's a report that I feel um, every sport should consider doing. We're the first sport to commission a report uh, that took two and a half years to write that went into this level of detail. There are 42 recommendations, a further 100 sub-recommendations that will reshape the game, make the game fairer for everybody. Um, and it is about sex. You know, the, the report went well beyond race. Equity is the key point here. And, you know, we had to and did make a heartfelt apology to people that felt excluded from cricket, which was utterly wrong, particularly as from my background, from a relative working class background, you know, leaving school at 16 with four O-levels meant that I was never going to be offered the same opportunities that, that others would. But cricket gave me those opportunities and I don't want a generation to be starved of those opportunities. And ultimately we have to work with government because we can't get cricket onto a curriculum. We can't unconcrete playing fields that no longer play cricket. So there's things that are out of our control that will require external support for us to achieve, but there's a lot that we can also achieve. But there are areas that, you know, the culture that exists in cricket um, has got to be a healthier culture. I believe we've done an awful lot already. We will repub- we will respond to the report formally at the end of September um, on the way we're going to respond to those recommendations. Um, and we're going at it very, very hard and make... Uh, you know, make it very clear that when we talk about reset, we genuinely mean a reset. Uh, and, and you will see that demonstrated at the end of the month. So uh, at the end of September. So I, I think it is a seminal moment for, for cricket. Uh, cricket, like any sport, reflects society back on itself. Um, but we are looking to take responsibility for things that um, other sports may also consider they feel they need to do as mm. well. But, you know, ultimately, we want cricket to be the country's most inclusive sport and the ICEC report will help us do that. Well, one last thought I had is for our audience, is there anything that the advertising and marketing world could learn from cricket? You know, be, there's often comparisons with sports, with uh, business. Is there anything, but I'm thinking particularly of, of this painful uh, and necessary look in the mirror, Anything generally when you take your cricket job back to MNC Saatchi? Take risk. I don't believe. Uh, I think cricket, if you think of 2003, we created a new format called T20. That's now a global format worth billions and billions of pounds. Took the risk three years ago, creating the 100, creating double headers. The, the difference that had for women's cricket was profound. And those risks, leaps of faith, have paid huge dividends to the sport um, and brought in a significant new audience. But we had to invest. We made bets. We made commitments to do things that few sports, uh, what other sports are following us. But we had to do it in the sense that cricket isn't necessarily, although test cricket was enthralling this summer, but to capture a Gen Z, Gen Y audience, you've got to do things in a shorter form. And 120 did that and enable cricket to continue to be relevant um, and and put men and women on an equal footing. And that's, again, essential to create that level of equality. But I I think sometimes you do have to look in the mirror and cricket's had to look in the mirror, ask itself some very difficult questions and now has a responsibility to respond to a report that will bring about that change. And so, you know, as as much as it's, it's challenging and difficult, if you really want to change a culture, 
and create new values, then they're the steps you have to take and be brave and be prepared to take them. All right. Well, Richard Thompson from MNC Saatchi UK and the ECB, thanks so much for joining us on the campaign podcast. Thank you, Gideon. Now, on to the final part of this podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Delafosse, Chief Creative Officer at Edelman UK, and Ben Golick, Creative Partner at Uncommon CX. And we're going to be talking about some recent ads. So thanks for joining. Let's kick off with Apple Pay, Pay the Apple Way, which is created in-house. The campaign includes a series of three films which capture people trying to pay for something but encountering difficulties from navigating a capture test while online shopping or difficult card machines. Juxtapose in the background, a person is using Apple Pay seamlessly for their items. Let's have a listen. You are mine now. Is that a traffic light or a brake light? Select all images for me. I feel like dogs herd sheep. Wait, do dogs herd sheep? Owls are the sheep gonna get around. It's gotta be the dog. Sometimes dogs herd sheep. Sometimes dogs herd sheep! Wait. Do dogs herd sheep? What did you guys think? Were you a fan? I think that's quite a nice way of... I mean, it's a, it's a classic problem-solution setup here, isn't mm. it, that they've gone mm-hmm. for? I mean, they've brought a bit of charm and humour to those problems. Perhaps sometimes, I'm not quite sure I identify with most of those problems anymore, though. I find online payments reasonably smooth and paying things with my phone in all sorts of ways reasonably smooth. So I'm not quite sure that uh, I was on board with how believable some of the problems were. But there's certainly some, some charm and some warmth in the way that they've brought them to life. Emma, do you agree? I completely agree, actually, with with um, what, what Ben just said. Yeah, what he just said. Um I am a massive fan of Apple work. Mm. Um, I actually just watch it out of sheer pleasure. <laughs> I know, Nerd. maybe I'm a real bloody saddo, <laughs> aren't I? Um, but I, you know, I love um, the, the, you know, the, the election. I, that, that's probably one of my favorites of all time. But I, I love, um, you know, the greatest as well and, and everything mm-hmm. they do, because I think that, um, Tor Myron, who's got who who's the um, global um, chief creative officer in house for Apple, he has just hit upon such an absolutely lovely, elegant yet simple way of, like Ben said, mm-hmm. demonstrating the product benefits. Um, yeah. So I am generally a, a signed up fan. That said, I didn't actually identify with the problems being um, kind of portrayed in these films. In my experience, I, you know, I don't have any issues paying with my card. I tap and go or I stick it in, I put the pin number in, I remove the card, off I go. Um, whereas actually <laughs> Apple Pay, not always so simple. And if you've ever been standing behind somebody who's boarding the 306 bus in Hammersmith or <laughs> getting on the tube, who's attempting to use their phone to kind of pay the bus fare or get through the, the gates at the tube, you will be very frustrated because more often than not, they keep trying to um, they, they, they keep trying to pay and it doesn't work and it doesn't work. Meanwhile, me, with my little card, boom, tap, and off I go. So I didn't find those scenarios or the insights believable, but mm. the actual execution, you know, the, the, the Apple style, the, the in-house style of creative is, as always, lovely. Mm. 
I'm starting to wonder how bad I am with my with technology because I'm like I did feel I did feel it. No, I'm joking. But like with the, with the capture test, it did leave me feeling a little bit like if you use Apple Pay, do you not have to tell you whether where the water hydrants are in that little box thing? Like I didn't I didn't know that's a thing. I don't know. It seems a bit odd to me. But you're right about the Apple ads. The what they do so well is just showing the function of their products rather than you know why it's cool to use Apple or have a MacBook and whatnot. T- so. Totally. I mean, what I really love is the way that they weave their product benefits and their, you know, all the different Mm. sort of like functionality into the narrative, into the story. And so you kind of only realize after you've been really enjoying um, watching a little film after, you know, they get away with doing like two minute pieces. Mm-hmm. At the end of that, you think, oh, what, yeah, what a wonderful story. I really enjoyed that. And you realize, oh, I've learned X, you know, A, B, C, D, E about the Apple product at the same time. And I mean, if that's not, if that's not persuasion, if that's not selling through brilliant storytelling, then I don't know what is. So as I said, sort of like most of the time, I think they absolutely hit the nail on the head, 10 out of 10. But with this, I just didn't quite relate to the sort of like the insights about the customer experience. Mm. I think the line's interesting, pay the Apple way. I mean, they're almost doing, like they did with the, with the shot on an iPhone, an entire campaign entirely about the camera. Here we've got an entire campaign entirely about payment. They really go after a, a particular mm. function or a particular uh, you know, use case and, and own it. I think it's just, you know, to Emma's point, a shame that some uh, you know, uh, someone struggling with a chip and pin machine isn't quite the world we're in right now. So I mm. think it, uh, while charming, it just doesn't ring true. Mm. Next up, we have Amazon Books, That Reading Feeling uh, by Droga5 London. Uh, Amazon Books commissioned 19 illustrators to create 110 designs that visualise what happens inside people's imaginations when reading. The ads were shot by Felicity Ingram and created by Chip McCoy and Ellie Keys. Let's have a listen. What did you guys think? Ben, do you want to go sure. first? I'll happily dive in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. You know what? I really, I, I always love it when there's lots of different people involved in making something. And I think what you see come through in this work is all that fantastic art direction, all that different sort of typography and all the ways that those, that the themes and the feelings of books have been brought to life. So I think it does a brilliant job of just creating that immersive feeling of reading. I think that what I'd love to see with it, I mean, it's a very advertising campaign. It's very ad-y and it's a campaign mm. that's about about an experience. And I'd just love to have seen where this might have gone if it had a bit more of an experiential touch. There are lots of lovely posters and films about the experience of reading, trying to capture and bring that uh, magic to life. I think it would have been great to, to see something perhaps that, that extended that beyond ads into, into something that I could experience uh, for myself or out in the world. I think there's a, a real opportunity to extend this one. Um, I think it's a great idea and, and the magic of reading really comes to life with the way that they've done it. But the line in the campaign is that reading feeling. And I think uh, I'd love I'd love to get in there and feel it a bit more with them. Mm. I Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Where, where do you go next with this? So it's visually um, very engaging. 
as Ben said, you've got lots of different creators doing their own thing. So you have a, you know, a smorgasbord um, of, of wonderful sort of like creative snippets, each uh, creator giving their POV on what it feels like to have read a particular book. I'll be honest, I've seen this kind of technique done before. Um, mm-hmm. It feels familiar. Um you know, people trying to bring to life how a particular book feels to read. It's a hard thing to do because reading is such a personal experience. And I I think it's tough to try and capture that um, within a couple of seconds and using, to, you know, to Ben's observation, kind of something that's quite addy. I don't really feel that it sells why you should read a particular book. The thing about a book is it's up and down. It takes you on that, you know, sorry to use a cliche, but that emotional roller coaster mm-hmm. and that quick kind of snippet of it feels like this. Uh, to me, I, it, I, it's not terribly persuasive. Um then you have got the problem of where does it take you? You know, what's the user experience? What What's the journey? What, you know, okay, where do I go from here? I'm a bit high and dry after that. So it kind of fell short for a number of different reasons for me. Executionally, beautiful. Absolutely. Lovely, lovely piece of design, fantastic animation. But I've kind of feel that that is a little bit of a well-worn route in trying to get people to to read who I'm assuming aren't readers. So you're going to have to work harder than that to kind mm. of draw draw them in. I think so. Maybe just a bit of a, a bit traditional in the way it's gone about it. Funnily enough, yeah, yeah. You talk about the next step, but I don't know if you remember. About a year ago, they did that reading feeling awaits, and it was a film that had sort of a mix of puppetry and animation and whatnot that does what you guys are describing um, in terms of bringing together that sort of imagination, the feeling of, you know, getting consumed by a book. So it seems a bit odd to sort of go back a bit, I guess, now um, when they've already sort of brought that out in terms of that. It's got that wonderful film in the laundromat of the, the, the washing all spilling out and it being mm-hmm, a scene mm-hmm. at sea as, uh, you know, as, as the kid falls overboard in the boat. And it's, it is quite immersive. I think I think I just sort of struggle, I think, with the, the poster addiness of it. It's a bit, it's a bit flat mm-hmm. and it's difficult create that emotion and it feels like if you'd made a brilliant film a year ago maybe the place to go next was into the experience space and not back into some yeah. static posters mm. it feels a bit like they've done the book cover but now i want to turn the page really and there is mm. really a page for me to turn mm-hmm. what a line i, I know that. i know anybody <laughs> think it's a writer <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'd read your books <laughs> thank you <laughs> um and finally um, we've got Minnie and Dogs Trust, Travel Happy by Media Monks. The campaign sees the comedian Alan Carr upstaged by sake as Minnie highlights the travel experience that dogs have in cars. The work was directed by Chris Faith and written for screen by Giles Bowen, who has worked with Carr previously on Chatty Man. Um, let's have a listen first. Minnie and Dogs Trust have invited me down to unveil the new VIP ambassador for their partnership. Apparently it's a campaign to highlight how they are both on a mission to make sure dogs travel happier. Come on, that's my chair, isn't it? (laughs) It's got my name on it. Sorry, Alan, the dog is the ambassador. I mean, who even calls a dog Alan? It's not even a great name for humans. Neckerchiefs are so last year. Mm. Did it make you laugh? 
I'm an Alan fan and a dog fan, so there's lots here for me. Whether it was funny, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think you know. I think what's really smart about this is they're looking to find a new reason for people to choose Mini, obviously. And mm. the UK is full of people who bought a dog in lockdown and are now living with the consequences mm-hmm. of what it's like to own a dog when the world's open again. And I think that there's a there's really interesting insight driving this, that there are loads of new dog owners in the UK getting to grips with going on holiday with a dog or to a restaurant with a dog or to the beach with a dog. So position yourself as the car for dogs is not a terrible place to be in terms of the mm-hmm. current market. And I think the content hub does quite a nice job when you get into it of, you know, beaches you can take your dog to or mm-hmm. how to, you know, travel safely and well with your dog. So I think the the content and the value is there. I think the production standards might let this one down a little bit. It mm. feels a little bit of a cheaper job, mm-hmm. but um, it's a smart, smart market to be cornering. I think that's what I liked about mm. it. Not all dogs, though, because minis are quite small. <laughs> I don't know. I'd like to see this, like them prove that you can get like a St. Bernard in the back. Uh, Emma, what did you think? I have a greyhound and I was actually wondering whether I could get my greyhound into a mini because at some point... I'm going to have to downsize my car mm. <laughs> at do you know how some you, point. Do you when you like go, go to like, man, like do you, so you're thinking of buying a mini and you go on the website and you can choose the color and like whatnot. Mm. You should do Ooh. a thing where it shows you putting your dog in it and it could like, I don't know, through technology. I adding that to the configurator, yeah. the car configurator, you can add your dog. Yep. So I'd definitely be in the mini countryman space, yes. you see, because I do need will, a bigger boot with the greyhound. It'll tell you, depending on what dog you've got, which mini you need. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. I'd love, I'd love to see it in the configurator. Yeah. I, I, I have to declare an I have to declare an interest as a mini driver. They're not that mini. I definitely think you could. Uh, I, if I can squeeze my wardrobe in, I think you'd fit a great thing. <laughs> okay, so. good to know. <laughs> I'm yeah. I mean, I for, for the third time, I'm completely with Ben on this one. I just. It what I love Alan Carr. He's genius. Um, I've loved watching him with Amanda Holden do, do up those properties in Italy. That I mean, it's just brilliant. He's he is a national treasure. Um, and I also love dogs, and I like minis. Um, so I was really looking forward to watching this one. I thought oh, that's going to be ten out of ten. Generally, anything with an animal in it always gets a top mark from me. Mm. Um, it. It felt a little bit forced. It felt a little bit flat. And I got the impression that that Alan Carr was a bit uncomfortable, Mm. that he wasn't, he didn't really feel, he was doing his very, very best to kind of like jolly the production along, you know. But I kind of think maybe, maybe if they let Alan Carr write some of the Mm. the script, it would have been better. Um, Yeah. So it's interesting was, you said that yeah. he did it with a long-time collaborator because yeah. I would agree with Emma. He didn't look completely comfortable. He didn't look at ease. He wasn't his natural self. So maybe the set just wasn't quite the right condition. Maybe he I hates think, dogs. Uh, I will give it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe does. And minis. I, um, I would give it points for a good charity. I mean, there are so many charity partnerships mm. where you go, why is that brand with that charity? And I think they found a good link between Mini and Dogs Trust in this and a reason for that charity alliance and mm. partnership. It, you know, it felt like they, they made it work and they found some common ground where I was like, okay, I understand why Mini and Dogs Trust are, are teaming up here. And so often with those brand charity partnerships, you're, you're left wondering, you know, sort of why, why they're in bed together. Mm-hmm. But this felt, this felt right and it felt like they had found a good reason to, to do so. Mm. Just yeah. it didn't make it didn't make me laugh, which was a shame. Mm. No, I mean, but to, to your point, it's kind of like, you know, the site had useful content on it. They're providing what I call marketing as a service. It's something that people will find 
genuinely useful. And then to Ben's point, you know, that really sort of cements the partnership. It's a brand in action, you know, and, and, and I think that's super important. Um, so, you know, tick, 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 tick. Um, great insight, people, you know. Yeah, I'd yet to find somebody who actually who doesn't own a dog these days because everybody seems to. I don't to. have one. Ah, I found somebody, Imogen. You are the one person that doesn't own a dog. I really want one. Yeah. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah, so it's only a matter of time. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so so I think it's it's a great insight and it's, you know, marketing as, as a service. Um, great partnership, you know, brand action, driving trust, all that sort of brilliant stuff. But yeah, just the actual execution of the film was not as funny as it could have been. Mm. Well, thank you both for joining to talk about some recent ads today. Cheers. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Gideon, Richard, Emma and Ben. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at www.campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket producers Inga Marsden and Till Owen and producer Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.